Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky Part 2, Chapter 1 So he lay a very long while. Now and then he seemed to wake up, and at such moments he noticed that it was far into the night, but it did not occur to him to get up. At last he noticed that it was beginning to get light. He was lying on his back, still dazed from his recent oblivion. Fearful, despairing cries rose shrilly from the streets, sounds which he heard every night, indeed, under his window after two o'clock. They woke him up now. Ah, the drunken men are coming out of the taverns, he thought. It's past two o'clock. And at once he leaped up, as though someone had pulled him from the sofa. What? Past two o'clock? He sat down on the sofa and instantly recollected everything. All at once, in one flash, he recollected everything. For the first moment, he thought he was going mad. A dreadful chill came over him, but the chill was from the fever that had begun long before in his sleep. Now he was suddenly taken with violent shivering, so that his teeth chattered and all his limbs were shaking. He opened the door and began listening. Everything in the house was asleep. With amazement, he gazed at himself and everything in the room around him, wondering how he could have come in the night before without fastening the door, and have flung himself on the sofa without undressing, without even taking his hat off. It had fallen off and was lying on the floor near his pillow. If anyone had come in, what would he have thought? That I'm drunk, but... He rushed to the window. There was light enough, and he began hurriedly looking himself all over from head to foot, all his clothes. Were there no traces? But there was no doing it like that. Shivering with cold, he began taking off everything and looking over again. He turned everything over to the last threads and rags, and mistrusting himself, went through his search three times. But there seemed to be nothing, no trace, except in one place where some thick drops of congealed blood were clinging to the frayed edge of his trousers. He picked up a big clasp knife and cut off the frayed threads. There seemed to be nothing more. Suddenly, he remembered that the purse and the things he had taken out of the old woman's box were still in his pockets. He had not thought till then of taking them out and hiding them. He had not even thought of them while he was examining his clothes. What next? Instantly, he rushed to take them out and fling them on the table. When he had pulled out everything and turned the pocket inside out to be sure there was nothing left, he carried the whole heap to the corner. The paper had come off the bottom of the wall and hung there in tatters. He began stuffing all the things into the hole under the paper. Therein, all out of sight, and the purse too, he thought gleefully, getting up and gazing blankly at the hole which bulged out more than ever. 
Suddenly he shuddered all over with horror. My God, he whispered in despair. What's the matter with me? Is that hidden? Is that the way to hide things? He had not reckoned on having trinkets to hide. He had only thought of money, and so had not prepared a hiding place. But now, now, what am I glad of, he thought. Is that hiding things? My reason's deserting me, simply. He sat down on the sofa in exhaustion, and was at once shaken by another unbearable fit of shivering. Mechanically, he drew from a chair beside him his old student's winter coat, which was still warm, though almost in rags, covered himself up with it, and once more sank into drowsiness and delirium. He lost consciousness. Not more than five minutes had passed when he jumped up a second time and at once pounced in a frenzy on his clothes again. How could I go to sleep again with nothing done? Yes, yes, I have not taken the loop off the armhole. I forgot it, forgot a thing like that. Such a piece of evidence. He pulled off the noose, hurriedly cut it to pieces, and threw the bits among his linen under the pillow. Pieces of torn linen couldn't rouse suspicion, whatever happened. I think not. I think not, anyway, he repeated, standing in the middle of the room, and with painful concentration he fell to gazing about him again, at the floor and everywhere, trying to make sure he had not forgotten anything. The conviction that all his faculties, even memory, and the simplest power of reflection were failing him, began to be an insufferable torture. Surely it isn't beginning already. Surely it isn't my punishment coming upon me. It is. The frayed rags he had cut off his trousers were actually lying on the floor in the middle of the room, where anyone coming in would see them. What is the matter with me? he cried again, like one distraught. Then a strange idea entered his head, that, perhaps, all his clothes were covered with blood, that, perhaps, there were a great many stains, but that he did not see them, did not notice them, because his perceptions were failing, were going to pieces, his reason was clouded. Suddenly he remembered that there had been blood on the purse, too. Ah, then there must be blood on the pocket, too, for I put the wet purse in my pocket. In a flash he had turned the pocket inside out, and, yes, there were traces, stains on the lining of the pocket. So my reason has not quite deserted me, so I still have some sense and memory, since I guessed it of myself, he thought triumphantly, with a deep sigh of relief. It's simply the weakness of fever, a moment's delirium, and he tore the whole lining out of the left pocket of his trousers. At that instant, the sunlight fell on his left boot, on the sock which poked out from the boot. He fancied there were traces. He flung off his boots. 
traces indeed. The tip of the sock was soaked with blood. He must have unwarily stepped into that pool. But what am I to do with this now? Where am I to put the sock and rags and pocket? He gathered them all up in his hands and stood in the middle of the room. In the stove? But they would ransack the stove first of all. Burn them? But what can I burn them with? There are no matches even. No, better go out and throw it all away somewhere. Yes, better throw it away, he repeated, sitting down on the sofa again. And at once, this minute, without lingering. But his head sank on the pillow instead. Again, the unbearable icy shivering came over him. Again, he drew his coat over him. And for a long while, for some hours, he was haunted by the impulse to go off somewhere at once, this moment, and fling it all away, so that it may be out of sight and done with, at once, at once. Several times he tried to rise from the sofa, but could not. He was thoroughly waked up at last by a violent knocking at his door. "'Open! Do! Are you dead or alive? He keeps sleeping here!' shouted Nastasia, banging with her fist on the door. "'For whole days together he's snoring here like a dog. A dog he is, too. Open, I tell you. It's past ten. "'Maybe he's not at home,' said a man's voice. "'Ha! That's the porter's voice. What does he want?' He jumped up and sat on the sofa. The beating of his heart was a positive pain. "'Then who can have latched the door?' retorted Nastasia. "'He's taken to bolting himself in, as if he were worth stealing. "'Open, you stupid! Wake up!' "'What do they want? Why the porter? "'All's discovered. Resist or open? Come what may!' He half rose, stooped forward, and unlatched the door. His room was so small that he could undo the latch without leaving the bed. Yes, the porter and Nastasia were standing there. Nastasia stared at him in a strange way. He glanced with a defiant and desperate air at the porter, who without a word held out a gray folded paper sealed with bottle-wax. "'A notice from the office,' he announced, as he gave him the paper. "'From what office?' "'A summons to the police, of course. You know which office.' "'To the police? What for?' "'How can I tell? You're sent for, so you go.' The man looked at him attentively, looked round the room, and turned to go away. "'He's downright ill.' observed Nastasia, not taking her eyes off him. The porter turned his head for a moment. He's been in a fever since yesterday, she added. Raskolnikov made no response and held the paper in his hands without opening it. Don't you get up then, Nastasia went on compassionately, seeing that he was letting his feet down from the sofa. You're ill, and so don't go. There's no such hurry. What have you got there? He looked. 
in his right hand. He held the shreds he had cut from his trousers, the sock, and the rags of the pocket. So he had been asleep with them in his hand. Afterwards, reflecting upon it, he remembered that half waking up in his fever, he had grasped all this tightly in his hand, and so fallen asleep again. Look at the rags he's collected, and sleeps with them, as though he has got hold of a treasure. And Nastasia went off into her hysterical giggle. Instantly, he thrust them all under his greatcoat, and fixed his eyes intently upon her. Far as he was from being capable of rational reflection at that moment, he felt that no one would behave like that with a person who was going to be arrested. But the police. You'd better have some tea. Yes, I'll bring it. There's some left. No, I'm going. I'll go at once, he muttered, getting onto his feet. Why, you'll never get downstairs. Yes, I'll go. As you please. She followed the porter out. At once he rushed to the light to examine the socks and the rags. There are stains, but not very noticeable, all covered with dirt and rubbed and already discolored. No one who had no suspicion could distinguish anything. Nastasia from a distance could not have noticed. Thank God. Then, with a tremor, he broke the seal of the notice and began reading. He was a long while reading before he understood. It was an ordinary summons from the district police station to appear that day at half-past nine at the office of the superintendent. But when has such a thing happened? I never have anything to do with the police. And why just today? he thought, in agonizing bewilderment. Good God, only get it over soon. He was flinging himself on his knees to pray, but broke into laughter, not at the idea of prayer, but at himself. He began hurriedly dressing. If I'm lost, I'm lost. I don't care. Shall I put the sock on? He suddenly wondered. It will get dustier still, and the traces will be gone. But no sooner had he put it on than he pulled it off again in loathing and horror. He pulled it off, but reflecting that he had no other socks, he picked it up and put it on again. And again he laughed. That's all conventional. That's all relative. Merely a way of looking at it, he thought in a flash, but only on the top surface of his mind while he was shuddering all over. There, I've got it on. I have finished by getting it on. But his laughter was quickly followed by despair. No, it's too much for me, he thought. His legs shook. From fear, he muttered. His head swam and ached with fever. It's a trick. They want to decoy me there and confound me over everything, he mused as he went out onto the stairs. The worst of it is I'm almost light-headed. I may blurt out something stupid. On the stairs, he remembered that he was leaving all the things just as they were in the hole in the wall. And very likely it's on purpose to search when I'm out, he thought, 
and stopped short. But he was possessed by such despair, such cynicism of misery, if one may so call it, that with a wave of his hand he went on. Only to get it over. In the street the heat was insufferable again. Not a drop of rain had fallen all those days. Again dust, bricks, and mortar. Again the stench from the shops and pothouses. Again the drunken men, the Finnish peddlers, and half-broken-down cabs. The sun shone straight in his eyes, so that it hurt him to look out of them, and he felt his head going round, as a man in a fever is apt to feel when he comes out into the street on a bright sunny day. When he reached the turning into THE street, in an agony of trepidation he looked down it, at THE house, and at once averted his eyes. If they question me, perhaps I'll simply tell, he thought, as he drew near the police station. The police station was about a quarter of a mile off. It had lately been moved to new rooms on the fourth floor of a new house. He had been once for a moment in the old office, but long ago. Turning in at the gateway, he saw on the right a flight of stairs which a peasant was mounting with a book in his hand. A house porter, no doubt. So then, the office is here. And he began ascending the stairs on the chance. He did not want to ask questions of anyone. I'll go in, fall on my knees, and confess everything, he thought, as he reached the fourth floor. The staircase was steep, narrow, and all sloppy with dirty water. The kitchens of the flats opened onto the stairs and stood open almost the whole day. So there was a fearful smell and heat. The staircase was crowded with porters going up and down with their books under their arms, policemen, and persons of all sorts and both sexes. The door of the office, too, stood wide open. Peasants stood waiting within. There, too, the heat was stifling, and there was a sickening smell of fresh paint and stale oil from the newly decorated rooms. After waiting a little, he decided to move forward into the next room. All the rooms were small and low-pitched. A fearful impatience drew him on and on. No one paid attention to him. In the second room, some clerks sat writing, dressed hardly better than he was, and rather a queer-looking set. He went up to one of them. What is it? He showed the notice he had received. You are a student? the man asked, glancing at the notice. Yes, formerly a student. The clerk looked at him, but without the slightest interest. He was a particularly unkempt person, with the look of a fixed idea in his eye. There would be no getting anything out of him, because he has no interest in anything, thought Raskolnikov. Go in there to the head clerk, said the clerk, pointing towards the furthest room. He went into that room, the fourth in order. It was a small room and packed full of people, rather better dressed than in the outer rooms. 
Among them were two ladies. One, poorly dressed in mourning, sat at the table opposite the chief clerk, writing something at his dictation. The other, a very stout, buxom woman, with a purplish-red, blotchy face, excessively smartly dressed, with a brooch on her bosom as big as a saucer, was standing on one side, apparently waiting for something. Raskolnikov thrust his notice upon the head clerk. The latter glanced at it, said, "'Wait a minute,' and went on attending to the lady in mourning. He breathed more freely. "'It can't be that.' By degrees he began to regain confidence. He kept urging himself to have courage and be calm. Some foolishness, some trifling carelessnesses, and I may betray myself. Hmm. It's a pity there's no air here, he added. It's stifling. It makes one's head dizzier than ever. And one's mind, too. He was conscious of a terrible inner turmoil. He was afraid of losing his self-control. He tried to catch at something and fix his mind on it, something quite irrelevant, but he could not succeed in this at all. Yet the head clerk greatly interested him. He kept hoping to see through him and guess something from his face. He was a very young man, about two and twenty, with a dark, mobile face that looked older than his years. He was fashionably dressed and foppish, with his hair parted in the middle, well-combed and pomaded, and wore a number of rings on his well-scrubbed fingers, and a gold chain on his waistcoat. He said a couple of words in French to a foreigner who was in the room, and said them fairly correctly. "'Louise Ivanovna, you can sit down,' he said casually, to the gaily-dressed, purple-faced lady who was still standing as though not venturing to sit down, though there was a chair beside her. Ich danke, said the latter, and softly, with a rustle of silk, she sank into the chair. Her light blue dress, trimmed with white lace, floated about the table like an air balloon, and filled almost half the room. She smelt of scent. But she was obviously embarrassed at filling half the room, and smelling so strongly of scent. And though her smile was impudent as well as cringing, it betrayed evident uneasiness. The lady in mourning had done at last, and got up. All at once, with some noise, an officer walked in very jauntily, with a peculiar swing of his shoulders at each step. He tossed his cockaded cap on the table and sat down in an easy chair. The smart lady positively skipped from her seat on seeing him, and fell to curtsying in a sort of ecstasy. But the officer took not the smallest notice of her, and she did not venture to sit down again in his presence. He was the assistant superintendent. He had a reddish mustache that stood out horizontally on each side of his face, and extremely small features expressive of nothing much except a certain insolence. He looked askance and rather indignantly at Raskolnikov. He was so very badly dressed, and in spite of his humiliating position, his bearing was by no means in keeping with his clothes. 
Raskolnikov had unwarily fixed a very long and very direct look on him, so that he felt positively affronted. "'What do you want?' he shouted, apparently astonished that such a ragged fellow was not annihilated by the majesty of his glance. "'I was summoned by a notice,' Raskolnikov faltered. "'For the recovery of money due from the student.' The head clerk interfered hurriedly, tearing himself from his papers. Here! And he flung Raskolnikov a document and pointed out the place. Read that! Money? What money? thought Raskolnikov. But, then, it's certainly not that. And he trembled with joy. He felt sudden, intense, indescribable relief. A load was lifted from his back. "'And pray, what time were you directed to appear, sir?' shouted the assistant superintendent, seeming for some unknown reason more and more aggrieved. "'You are told to come at nine, and now it's twelve. "'The notice was only brought me a quarter of an hour ago,' Raskolnikov answered loudly over his shoulder. To his own surprise, he, too, grew suddenly angry, and found a certain pleasure in it. "'And it's enough that I have come here ill with fever. "'Kindly refrain from shouting. "'I'm not shouting. I'm speaking very quietly. "'It's you who are shouting at me. "'I'm a student, and allow no one to shout at me.' "'The assistant superintendent was so furious "'that for the first minute he could only splutter inarticulately.' he leaped up from his seat. "'Be silent. You are in a government office. Don't be impudent, sir.' "'You're in a government office, too,' cried Raskolnikov. "'And you're smoking a cigarette, as well as shouting, so you are showing disrespect to all of us.' He felt an indescribable satisfaction at having said this. The head clerk looked at him with a smile. The angry assistant superintendent was obviously disconcerted. "'That's not your business,' he shouted at last, with unnatural loudness. "'Kindly make the declaration demanded of you. Show him, Alexander Grigorievich. There is a complaint against you. You don't pay your debts. You're a fine bird.' But Raskolnikov was not listening now. He had eagerly clutched at the paper— in haste to find an explanation. He read it once, and a second time, and still did not understand. "'What is this?' he asked the head clerk. "'It is for the recovery of money on an I.O.U., a writ. You must either pay it, with all expenses, costs, and so on, or give a written declaration when you can pay it, and at the same time an undertaking not to leave the capital without payment,' and not to sell or conceal your property. The creditor is at liberty to sell your property, and proceed against you according to the law. But I am not in debt to anyone. We'll continue Part 2, Chapter 1, next week.